This is the Alpha Human Podcast, and I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg. Our guest today is Magda Khalifa. Magda is a first-generation American, a combat veteran, and a business owner. After witnessing the attacks in New York City on September 11, 2001, she left everything behind and joined the military. After serving two tours in Iraq, she struggled to rebuild her life in much the same way the nation struggled to rise from the ashes of that fateful day. Eventually, Magda overcame her challenges and started her first of a number of businesses. And today, she brings the lessons learned through war and life to businesses as well as individuals through speaking, consulting, and mentorship. Magda is also the author of American Dream, Discipline, Resilience, Endurance, Adaptability, and Mentorship to Succeed and Win in Life. Magda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lawrence. I really appreciate being here. Well, I'll tell you what, I am so psyched uh, that you're on the show. I absolutely loved your book. I read it. And I, I got to tell you, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I, was, I was really uh, blown away because I love getting on the show women that are leaders, women that are trailblazers, women that are doing something unique in the world. And I do research constantly looking for great thought leaders that are, you know, not just from business, I want, I'm looking for someone who's well-rounded uh, and, you know, maybe I, I love those that have served in the military. I love those who have done extraordinary things. Um, and when I came upon your story and I saw your book, I saw that you were a combat veteran and that you had a few businesses and that you'd overcome some, some really tough challenges. And I'm like, my God, I got to get Magda on the show. And then when I read your book, I didn't know what to expect but I absolutely, it resonated so much with me and we'll get into it in this podcast, but it, I got to tell you, it certainly doesn't, it doesn't hurt that you happen to be a huge heavy metal fan. So we're going to talk about that. You love Metallica. You love Slayer. I don't know, I don't know too many, uh, too many girls uh, who are great business leaders who are running around in a mosh pit at a Slayer concert at the age of 42. <laughs> We are a dying breed. <laughs> we, we, we are. We are. Um, you know, but uh, you know what? That absolutely uh, blew me And I, I got so much joy out of your book. There's so many lessons in there. So I'd love to start at the beginning uh, and then kind of delve into a few areas. But you've got a great story. So let's start with your upbringing. Uh, you're a Jersey girl. You grew yeah. up in New Jersey, uh, the daughter of immigrants. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit about you know, your upbringing in, uh, in New Jersey. Absolutely. So it, it was a great place to be in the 70s. You know? <laughs> Life was good. We were right outside New York City, easy to get into and out of, um, you know, access to everything. And everybody was here. You know, it was just a, a really, really great place to be. And, you know, I, I felt that just growing up in this area, it really provided me um, a lot of street smarts, uh, 
a lot of skills, uh, a lot of gratitude for, for a lot of things and a lot of different people, you know, uh, the melting pot, you know, so mm. I, I, I'm grateful that I grew up in this area and um, just have an appreciation for so much. You know, it, it's funny where you grew up again, you're right outside of New York city and right. And um, New Yorkers and, and New Jersey, you know, there's such a kinship there, but it's also a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of friction back in the day, right? <laughs> but New York and New Jersey, we have that same, same attitude, that same hustle, that same determination. Uh, and yeah, you, uh, you know, you certainly had uh, a really, really uh, strivers upbringing. So let's talk a little bit about that. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to quote you here from the book. Uh, at home, and this is particular to you, um, you know, I, lo I love this. At home, we loved watching black and white documentaries about World War II, the Wings of War series on Discovery Channel, Westerns. Uh, you loved baseball, Magda. You watched WWF wrestling before it was WWE, right? Uh, James Bond movies. And you say any movie with Clint, uh, Clint Eastwood or Marilyn Monroe, um, you said, I love the sound of World War II era warplanes and machine gun fire. <laughs> so and usually, um, you know, I didn't know too many girls who were, when I was growing up, the girls I hung out with weren't into Clint Eastwood movies or the WWF. Um, so, uh, you know, I, but I guess, did you get this from your father, um, you know, your mom? Tell me a little bit about them. So I would say it was primarily from my father's side, you know, but, you know, I remember we would watch Saturday night main event as a family, you know, Love Hulk that. Hogan, uh, uh, you know, it, it was just wonderful. You know, um, we had a lot of fun together. My parents, uh, so my father was from Egypt, my mother from Colombia, and they were great. I mean, two very different cultures, but mm -hmm. one thing they both shared, they, they loved music and, uh, and dancing and, you know, even though my dad was the quiet reserved one, my mom was, um, you know, more spirited. They, you know, when it came to music and entertainment and, and um, having fun, having fun as a family, uh, they shared that together. And that was something, you know, that I'm glad that I grew up around um, and have a lot of fond memories, especially as a child. Yeah, so um, there's, a, uh, there's a part in the book, I'll, I'll kind of bring it up here, because, you know, again, I, I, you start seeing the seeds of where you end up later on, even though you, you may not have never done that. Uh, and when I'm what I'm talking about is going into the military, uh, had it not been for September 11th, but yet the seeds were being planted. As I just mentioned, you know, you love the World War II documentaries. You love the sound of machine gun fire. Um, here in the book, uh, you say, in November 1990, we did a family trip out west. I remember sitting in the back seat as we drove from Arizona to Las Vegas. I was excited that we were going to visit the Hard Rock Cafe to celebrate my birthday. As we drove through the dark desert, the news on the radio was talking about the situation in the Middle East and how the U.S. may be going after Saddam Hussein in Iraq. In January, I remember watching the war unfold on CNN. It was exciting and victorious and had really piqued my interest. Footage of bombs dropping and stuff blowing up fascinated me. Where, where, did, where did this fascination with 
uh, the military with with these um, these battles and uh, and and war. Where did where was that coming from? You think? Why did it fascinate you? Well, I don't know. I mean, I suppose um, looking back, you know, this was this was the eighties. Well, that, at that point, we were in the nineties, um, early nineties, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I read a lot as a child, and uh, you know, the exposure to things on television in this case you know, this, this 17 hour war or hundred hour war rather, you know, on, on CNN, um, to me it was fascinating because it was something big and, you know, it, it, um, aligned with America and America's strength and, you know, pride of being an American and good mm. doing good. And, uh, you know, so there was that side of it. And then, um, you know, uh, what we traveled a lot all over the United States and, and abroad and, um, I remember visiting a lot of warships and museums, you know, even the, um, the Curtis Wright Museum to learn about flight and, and whatnot. And right. I didn't understand everything. Um, I was fascinated and interested and curious. So to see this war playing out on television real time, you know, that, w- you know, as opposed to something recorded uh, like a movie, um, that was interesting. That mm. was you know, something, uh, you know, I was very curious about. Um, was your, were your parents, uh, again, your mom was from Colombia, uh, dad from Egypt. Um, were, were they, cause I, I remember back then, you know, there was so much patriotism. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a second generation, uh, second generation. So my grandparents, uh, that's where you start finding the immigrants in my family. But, uh, you know, my grandparents were um, Italian. They were from Eastern Europe. They were super patriotic. Um, was your dad and your mom, did you, did you grow up around that kind of patriotism? Yes. Well, we always had our, you know, our flag up during, uh, you know, the major holidays. Fourth of July was a big celebration. We would go to the uh, local park in town and, and watch the celebration and have our barbecue and um, there was always, you know, spirit, pride to be an American. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom would articulate it more. Uh, you know, I remember she shared uh, a story about how, you know, when she went to get naturalized, I guess at the courthouse, I was mm-hmm. a little baby, right? So she, you know, brought me there and they gave her a little American flag and she gave it to me and I was waving it, you know, as a little child would do, I suppose. And, you know, it's one of those things that um, hearing her talk about it uh, made me appreciate the country we were in. And of course, over the years, you know, I, I had visited Colombia and I had visited Egypt. Okay. And I hear stories, um, mom was uh, not as privileged growing up and you know, she would share stories just here and there, you know, um, in passing, if you will, about um, some of the struggles growing up, you know, and I remembered hearing that. And I guess that registered in my mind and it just made me appreciate being born here in this country. And um, there is a passage in the book that, you know, my father, um, I remember him speaking and telling me, you know, you, you were born here. You know, I came here at age 30. Um, you were born here. There's no excuse not to take advantage of every opportunity to succeed and live a good life, you know? And I remember him saying that, you know, and I always remember him saying that. So, so yes, there was a lot of like little planting of seeds, but it was just who they were. And that was just the environment that I grew up. And, um, I, uh, collected those, those, uh, 
um, little things that they said here and there and that, you know, collected over time and just helped shape who I was and my views of appreciation being a first generation American. Yeah, your, your, your mom, if I recall, tried to join the, the, the military when she got here. Was that, did I, did I read that correct? Yes, which is, you know, when I heard that, I was already out of the military at that point. And she's, she's, she is something else. <laughs> she is absolutely the strongest woman and probably one of the strongest people I know. Um, wow. I mean, just when she, she would drop these stories, you know, every now and then I'm like, what? Why am I just learning this? And uh, yeah, 1968, height of the Vietnam War. Right. And she uh, came over from Columbia, didn't, I think she had high school education, but was told by the recruiter, you know, she, she wanted to join the military because she needed a job. And um, she was told by the recruiter at the New York Times recruiting station that her English wasn't good enough. So she didn't join the military. And I'm like, wow, really? mom, you were going to like, I don't know, like I'm proud of her for, you know, um, making the effort to do that. And I'm just kind of mind blown too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, she would have been in like this today. She yeah. you know, it would have taken her in. Um, mm -hmm. That's so that, yeah. Um, very powerful woman. And then your dad as well. Um, he was a brilliant guy, apparently. Um, very, very bright. Uh, I think he was, he was an engineer. Yes. He was, he was an engineer and uh, later a director of engineering. He had um, a couple patents and um, just, just extremely smart. You know, when it came to mm. like hard mathematical calculus homework, I mean, he can just answer, you know, the, the, the problems, one, two, three. And of course I didn't have that gene. <laughs> I struggled <laughs> on the math side. Um, yeah, he was, he was very smart. Well, yeah, you're right. He said in the book something along the lines of, you know, he, yeah, he moved here when he was 30. If he would have, if he would have been born here, he'd be a billionaire by now. <laughs> something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, he said that. And I realized, oh, wow, I am lucky to be born here. Wow, you know. Amazing, amazing. Okay, so, you know, you, so you're coming from the, you know, from the, the DNA of hustle. And, uh, you know, now you're in Jersey, you got that, that Jersey spirit and, You've got a formula, um, work equals money equals freedom. Um, you know, you've got Jocko Willink who says discipline equals freedom. I like yours. Work equals money equals freedom. Uh, so you say in the, uh, in the book, you say the Jersey hustle was real and work meant money and money meant freedom. At 13 years old, you worked a summer job at a roller skating rink making pizzas. Uh, quote, we often hear that for people to do business with you, they have to know, like, and trust you. But you put a slightly different spin on it, Magda. Um, mm -hmm. The Jersey spin, I'll call it, which is kind of like the New York City version. Right? You say, growing up Jersey, I learned early on how to build relationships with everyone. It's what we did. There were no barriers. You could dislike someone and they could dislike you, but you both knew where each other stood and you could still do business together. That kind of rapport building goes a lot further than pretentious banter, which is limited. I was fortunate to learn early in life that everything falls on relationships. People prefer to do business with people they like, know, and trust. But even if they don't like you, 
but they know and trust you, you can still make a deal together. You can be the most affable, likable person, but if they don't know you, if you have no relationship, collaboration of any kind will be hard pressed. I think that's uh, very interesting. Uh, so you say, look, because it's almost like a sales mantra now, Every, you know, no like and trust, no like and trust, no like and trust. You're like, yeah, like we get it. But as long as someone knows and trusts you, you know, not everyone's going to get along, but deals can be made. And in this day and age, there's a lot of division in the world. Um, and it's good to know that, you know what, we don't have to agree on, every, we don't have to agree on everything. Hey, we could still make a deal here. We have common interests. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, learning? First of all, you're working at 13 years old. Today, no one's working at 13. Be like, be like shot, you know, you, it's like a, working at a sweatshop. I, yeah, I, I, um, I'm very grateful that I uh, entered the workforce, even in, in, on a part-time basis early on. I mean, it was yeah. great. You know, I was around adults. I had responsibility. I had a little paycheck, you know, three thirty-five an hour. But right. hey, yeah, it got me my Metallica cassette tapes. <laughs> Strong. <laughs> um, no, it was wonderful. And I, I just want to get more experience, do things, you know, I, mean, I had this natural curiosity about life. Um, I think that came from the uh, upbringing I had and, you know, what we had started to talk about in the beginning of the show. But um, yeah, I do believe it, you know, you know, up here uh, in Jersey, you can not like people, you know, or uh, a particular person, but you could still work with them. You could still do things, you know, because you, if you understand them, mm -hmm. uh, at common ground and, and I don't see that as much elsewhere. And, um, you know, it's something that I've been fortunate, I guess, to be exposed to and to learn because I, I think that's uh, opened up uh, more relationships and maybe um, opened up relationships that would otherwise have been harder to, to build, you know, professionally and, and uh, um, you know, even personally. So mm. it, it's, uh, I love it. Like I, I, you know, group think can be very dangerous and, mm. uh, you know, I've been in environments where I'm, um, the collective thinking, uh, well, obviously in the military, I mean, <laughs> the discipline, you know, you, ha you have a, a collective output, if you will. But, uh, but I've been in many environments, um, and I lived in different places where collective thinking, you know, can be dangerous and limiting. And I realized I'm more of an original thought kind of person, um, maybe an acquired taste at times, and that's okay. You know, I'd rather be true to myself and I'd rather people know the real me than, you know, play, play the game, you know, because interesting. It's, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That's, uh, that's definitely not um, in abundance these days, but your dad taught you something early on. Um, which I'd, I'd like you to kind of comment on. He said, become invaluable at work and you will always have a job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember him speaking to me about that specifically. And it was like, he figured out the system and, you know, he had a family to feed and take care of. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm not a parent, but, you know, I appreciated that he, he figured out quickly, like so many immigrants who come over, you know, um, I may have my citizenship, but to survive and to provide, I need to keep that hustle going. And, you know, he figured out quickly in his career, um, how to always be 
valued. And I think he worked two different companies um, since he moved here mm-hmm. to the United States uh, to when he retired. So I know those days seem to be gone, you know, where, when, um, where people would have careers at one uh, business, one company, um, because things have changed so much. Right. But at the same point, you know, he was, you know, he, you know, worked his way up the, um, the, the ladder, if you will, you know, that was uh, his, his path, but he was successful at doing that. So he shared what he saw as the keys to success uh, in the employment world. So, um, you're working from the time you're 13 and you seem to be driven to really want to work. You had a ton of different gigs and summer jobs. Uh, you worked carnivals. <laughs> you worked at the Meadowlands Arena. Uh, after high school, you wanted to start working right away, but dad convinced you to go to college. Uh, yet you were still determined to work and earn money while you're in college. Uh, so quote, uh, I had no choice than to become highly disciplined and efficient at time management so I could get studies in and make time to continue working part-time jobs so that I had money. There were no excuses. I knew what I had to do to advance my life and I knew no one was gonna do it for me. If it was meant to be, it was up to me and no one and nothing was gonna get in my way. Little did I know at the time that I was already executing the whatever it takes mindset I learned from one of my mentors years later. I adapted to the circumstances I sacrificed social time and I made it happen. Some classmates at school didn't understand why I chose to work hard instead of joining a sorority or attending campus parties. I never felt the need to explain and conversely wondered why they felt the overwhelming need to be liked and to fit in through groupthink and predefined social acceptance. So, you know, again, you, you, so, you know, even from this time, you seem to be, kind of breaking out of that, that, the, the, that social norm, that group think, uh, that hive mind uh, that so many people fall into. You, you know, you seem to be a bit of an iconoclast. Um, why do you think that was? I mean, I'm not sure why um, I saw things that with, with clarity um, in that sense. But I do know at a, at a tactical level, you know, um, if I worked, that meant I had money. If I had money, I can buy what I wanted or do things that I wanted to do. Um, so that was the logic that, you know, that drove it, if you will. Uh, and it, it was rewarding um, to be able to chart and take control of the direction of my life. And, you know, groupthink can be dangerous, you know, and uh, I felt that I was uh, moving forward faster um, in many ways. And that boosted my confidence and kind of propelled me to keep going in pursuing all of the things that I ended up pursuing. Um, So I think that kind of um, is encapsulated when you say in the book, or when you advise in the book to live a life where you have enough conviction in yourself that any underestimation of you is at the detriment of anyone who does so. The right people are attracted to that inner strength. Others may not see it, whatever, it does not matter. 
You and you alone are responsible for the decisions you make and where you go and what you do in life. So this seems to be a, uh, a lost sentiment, Magda, among many uh, today who feel that they are the victim of their environment or of circumstances beyond their control. Yep. Yeah, I, um, I don't understand the victimhood. I, I just don't. Are there injustices in society, in the world? Absolutely. But what people don't understand is that they can take whatever experiences they have and they can use that to boost where they're going. You know, they can use the injustices, I'm using as a general term, as uh, fuel to keep them moving forth. And it's so powerful because when enough bad things or unfair things happen to you, you know, you have a choice. You can play the victim or you could say, screw it, I'm just going to keep going and I'm going to push harder and nothing is going to stop me. And, you know, I know the path I chose and I just don't see enough messaging along those lines or examples out there today. Now, there are plenty of examples of that. And that, that's, you know, when I realized, um, <laughs> when I realized I have an example in how I've led my life and I needed to share it because not doing so is not going to serve others. Uh, so, that, you know, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Um, it's, again, not going to be for everybody, but for somebody that really wants to make a difference in their life, you know, they have to have that intent, but they have the power within themselves to do so. And, you know, there's so many examples out there really, but, you know, people either don't take the time to look at it, you know, and it's, especially today, everything is, you know, soundbite, soundbite kind of world. Yeah. And uh, lessons learned, you know, do, do I, did I know 20 years ago what I know now? Of course not. We, we don't, you know, we get wiser as we get older, we have more experiences that shape us. Um, but hopefully too, and I'm, I'm, I'm striving to do this, is uh, find a way to articulate it and pay forward so that others, whomever they, that may be, can benefit from it, you know, because um, yeah. I get it. You know, I mean, I, I didn't go through, you know, um, a pandemic as a, a, you know, and a, a countrywide lockdown and uh, many of the things that we're seeing today. I didn't go through that as, you know, a 20 year old. Um, right. I did go through seeing our country attacked, uh, you know, so that was a different type of experience, but, sure. but we all have something, you know, life is going to suck <laughs> many times for all of us and many times in our lives. And, you know, what are we going to do about it? You know, so it's amazing how powerful, how strong, how resilient we human beings are. We just don't know it. A lot of us do not know it. Those that know it, I believe, have a duty to put it forth in their own unique way and help others find it. Because collectively, you know, we're stronger when people are stronger, you know, and this, this getting back to what you said about, you know, the, the victimhood message out there. Oh my goodness. Like I, I roll my eyes at it, you know, because I'm like, come on, every single human being in this country can, you know, play that I'm a victim mm. with, with so many different 
aspects of their lives. And yes, do bad things happen? Absolutely. And, you know, and there's a, a scale of, of, of many different things that go on. But what are you going to do about it? You know, are you going to let that episode in your life um, dominate and steal your goals, your dreams from you, your livelihood, who you are, you know, and I get it every, you know, there are many different experiences um, that can really rock your world and can take some time. We're not, you know, robots, we're humans, we have feelings and, um, you know, we have to process things and we think and we overthink and, you know, any combination thereof. But you have to know, you have to build that conviction in yourself. And personally, I'm grateful when I think back to a lot of the hardships I've experienced in life. I am so grateful because I wouldn't be the person I am today mm. had I not gone through that. I, you know, I, I would be a good person, but I, I don't know that I would be, I, I don't know that I would be the leader that I am. I don't know that I would um, have be taking the risks that I do take and growing the way I'm growing. And in turn, um, helping others, uh, you know, f find, find their voice, find their, you know, inner resilience to, um, so of course I'm grateful and, you know, most things in life, you, you get through it, you get through it, have some more experiences, yeah. pretty soon the good experiences, you know, if you surround yourself with the right people and do the right thing and, and you're a good person, the good is going to outweigh the bad. And I think it's so important to be able to have enough going on in your life that it puts time and distance between the bad of the past and where you are today. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think all of us to some degree uh, can, you know, play the victim. We've been victimized. Uh, and we can, you know, we can all certainly think of times in, in our lives. Again, there's a scale, right? Um, but I don't know one great success story. I mean, okay, maybe there's an anomaly, but there's, there's very few great success stories where those who have risen have uh, had to, have had to not rise from the ashes, have had to not become a phoenix, have had to not go through tough times in order to be who they were. You, you know, if you don't, if you haven't been victimized, if you haven't been challenged, if you haven't been crushed, beaten down, uh, burnt to the ground, slapped around, uh, and really put through the ringer, then how are you ever going to test your metal? And how are you ever going to rise above to become, to become great, to become successful? There's a, there's a saying, um, adversity makes, uh, makes men, adversity makes men, prosperity makes monsters. Uh, so if we want to be gender inclusive, we could say adversity makes heroes, right? Adversity makes heroes and, uh, prosperity makes monsters. And, uh, we are a rich nation beyond imagination on this planet. We're the most powerful nation, the wealthiest nation this planet's ever known yet. Uh, we're, we're fast becoming, uh, a decadent, uh, and soft and weak nation, which we'll talk about, um, I know this is part, partially your sentiment, but um, your Jersey, talk about something a little less weighty for a moment, but a bit philosophical. You're a Jersey girl that was into metal listening to Slay or Anthrax, Metallica, some of my favorite bands, 89.5 WSOU. I still listen to WSOU to this day, the iconic 
metal station that, you know, makes it out to Brooklyn, <laughs> where I grew up uh, yeah. and where I am today, uh, and is, you know, just plays the, the best music. But, but how do you think, because I've often wondered, I've, you know, you listen to the lyrics of, of metal songs. How do you think metal played a role in your attitude and in your view on life? Because I've noticed a difference in the way those who are into metal view the world versus those into other styles of music. Um, I think a correlation can be drawn, but it's kind of similar to hip hop in many ways. I find that those that are into metal, those that are into hip hop, especially the hip hop from back in the day, have a more like determined view of life versus the, a fatalistic perspective. Like when grunge music came in, it's, it was very fatalistic. I always said, you know, you see a lot of suicide, you know, you see all these suicides, you know, sadly, of a lot of the great like, icons of 90s music and, and of grunge in particular, um, whether it's uh, Kurt Cobain or whether it's Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. Um, you, not, you don't see too many suicides among, uh, um, um, you, you can't kill anyone in metal. They're like cockroaches. They, they live through a nuclear war. Great. I mean, yes, absolutely. Uh, something about metal, and I, I don't think it had anything to do with the lyrics because I don't think I knew what the lyrics were half the time, but the sound, that beat, you know, it's just, you know, ranging. It was greater than the emotions you were feeling, you know, and I loved it. You know, I, I um, heavy metal became my drug. I think that's a chapter title I have. Yeah. In the book. Um, it did. I never did drugs. But I turned in, you know, to the music when I was going through my prepubescent years, you know, and started to, you know, clash with, um, you know, my dad. Um, I would get my um, headphones, you know, the Sony Walkman headphones, yeah. blast, you know, blast the cassette tape or WSOU, uh, the hardest rock. And uh, it made me feel better. You know, I could come down from like that rage you know well back then it was like rage and hormones right <laughs> yeah but uh yeah it, it worked you know and you know I was a good kid I was a really good kid <laughs> but something about that music so later on um uh obviously <laughs> in in war you know um during some tough times of course I would listen to that music as well and uh you know to pump myself up before missions and mm -hmm. Also, uh, later on when I started, you know, working out very intensely, um, you know, I, I would turn to that kind of music and that would really just drive that workout and push me to go like a little further, you know, dig deep into the pain, you know. Um, I like a lot of music, don't get me wrong, you know, but mm -hmm. pop is not going to cut it for me when I'm working out, you know, intensely. Maybe if I'm going for a nice jog or something else but um but you know metal is powerful it's a powerful tool and obviously there's not as much metal uh, or new metal i should say in the world today that there was when you and i were growing up um so i feel very fortunate to have lived through that through its heyday and uh you know to have found its use as a tool so um with hip-hop you're right there's probably um correlations with that as well you know um although i think I, I believe that's more so on the lyric side versus the uh instrumental range of mm. you know metal you know um shredding guitars and 
you know, double bass drums and everything. It's just, it's just a different uh, type of tool. Right. And, uh, you're absolutely right. When you started talking about, you know, the garage, I remember I was a freshman in Jersey City State College on that radio station when, you know, Kurt Cobain's um, Smells Like Teen Spirit, you know, Nirvana mm -hmm. uh, came in and it was played all day, every day. And yep. it was a cool song, but I was like, I felt like sadness, like, oh my goodness, like this is changing the landscape of metal. And it, it really did start to change. And of course, I love so much of, you know, the grunge band's music. Um, however, I, I could feel that change, you know, in yeah. the air. Um, and, and, you know, heavy metal has not necessarily been the same since then. Yeah, it took a pause. It came back. Um, metal came back. Metal had a comeback. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious. What was the first? What was the first metal band you heard? And and like, my God, it was like an epiphany. Uh, Metallica and Ozzy, I was uh, exposed to first, and uh, Slayer soon afterwards. Right. And Metallica was the first metal show that I went to. Um, 19, oh my goodness, I used to have the date memorized, July 20th, 1987 at Giants, uh, at the Meadowlands Arena with the cults opening up. And it was just amazing, you know, the theatrics of having this giant blindfolded uh, Lady Liberty on stage rocking back and forth and then falling down, you know, at the end of the Justice and All for, um, and Justice for All tour. Uh, phenomenal. And, oh, I'm sorry, it was the cult that opened up, not Queensryche, Queensryche was later. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, an experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, uh, I, saw, I, saw, I saw that tour. I saw, um, it's funny you say Ozzy, because I saw Metallica open for Ozzy uh, when Master of Puppets came out. Nice. So nice. I saw that tour, I saw it just for all, absolutely. Metallica um, was not the first metal band that I listened to, but it was a Metallica was that change in metal because there was Black Sabbath, there was Iron Maiden, right? There was Judas Priest, there was ACDC, and then something happened. Thrash metal came along, and that's when you had Metallica coming up, Anthrax coming up, right? You had Slayer, you had all of these bands coming out, and I was like, and it was just like a whole new type of metal, and yeah, it was insane, but. Um, anyway, yeah, it's great. Uh, as I said, the, the lyrics, um, of metal and the, the music and hip hop, they seem to be, you know, there seems to be a mindset and uh, it's very different than, uh, the most music. So you, you wrote that, uh, I wrote, I wrote this book with the intent of providing answers, uh, giving hope or a nugget that can help change or transform your life. People are confused today and they need strong grounded people of integrity to provide life guidance. History has been rewritten and it is hard to think straight because of technology and information overload or because prescribed substances affect thinking. Critical thinking is waning in the overstimulating soundbite world we live in. So I'd like to ask you, Magda, how has history been rewritten? In what way? And I'll, I'll leave you with this quote from George Orwell uh, in his book, 19, in his novel, 1984. 
who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Tell us how you feel history is being rewritten. Absolutely. Well, when I think back to what I learned in school as history and then what I learned later on, mm -hmm. you know, um, I see the disparity between the two. Uh, then understanding also the influence of organizations and lobbyists and, and to, to literally change textbooks. I mean, that, that has been occurring for a long time. So you have to wonder what the truth is. Um, what's out there. And, you know, I understand when people want to homeschool their children or, you know, they want to send their children to um, schools, private type schools, uh, mm -hmm. so that they, um, they have better control of the education that they're receiving. I get it. I get it. I do. Because when you grow up, I mean, there's on one hand, you know, a lot of kids just like sleep through history class. You know, if you don't have a compelling teacher, you're going to yeah. sleep through it. But um, it, it's important, you know, when we are teaching our, uh, you know, our children in schools, uh, what has happened in our country's history, you know, good and bad, you know, to show all sides, not just one side that serves whatever, you know, purpose or power organization at the time. So I did not realize that existed until, you know, I grew up and learned um, mm. about caveats of history that we didn't learn in school or that, you know, things that were twisted in a particular way. Um, you know, you don't have that appreciation until you have context. So I think it's important to cap a capture history because there's so much of history. So I was uh, part of a uh, special operations command. I was on the softer side of soft SOF. Um, there's, you know, there were efforts to capture a lot of the history, but, you know, a lot of it is, or was, or, you know, still is classified. So there are limitations to how much can be captured and shared. And that's understandable, of course, you know, right. but um, I appreciate history. Um, I, I, obviously, military history is fascinating to me. And I just think it's so important to, you know, document that because we can look to the past and see how, when I say people, I mean, as groups have gotten through, you know, have solved problems in society, have gotten through things like I did not realize the parallels between 2020 and 1908 um, about the economic conditions, the riots that were going on. I, I was mind blown at, at how many parallels there were. And then, you know, understanding that is what happened then, you know, it, it kind of helps you realize the cyclical nature of, you know, societies and empires that, you know, rise and fall. And we are such a young country for sure. So um, I love history. I think it's so important, you know, look at the civilizations who that have been around for thousands of years, you know, and it's, it's sad to see uh, their history being destroyed um, maliciously, you know, uh, at times, uh, temples being, um, you know, destroyed by enemy forces, external or yes. uh, within as well, you know, so uh, books, you know, whenever I see books being burned, you know, it, it, it kind of breaks my heart because books, you know, they tell stories, even if they're not actual, you know, historical, you know, nonfiction and accounts, right. it captures the eras of, you know, the time that it was written in, you know, right. and that's, form of history, you know, even if it's a fictional form, uh, a story, if you will, um, you know, you can learn a lot, you know, and I mean, if you look back at 
a movie right now and and you see them using those big brick cell phones i mean we remember those days yeah. <laughs> we remember pay phones everywhere and you know and that's historical and it shows um it, it speaks to the change and the velocity of change with technology in the past you know 25 years so i value history i i hold it in high regard um i if i had a few more hours in the day i would read more uh and learn more about our history and you know of course we have that that famous quote um, people who don't you know study history are doomed to repeat it and repeat it right. bad things and you know looking at the um events in uh you know recent years in our country you know it, it made me wonder like what are people what are children learning in school these days and you know and previous generations you know um like after myself what have they learned or what are they not learning and it, it's just such a big um factor when you have context and realizing like bad things happen in in nations and you know there are wars and there are famines and, and pandemics and you know, but it's not doomsday. It's not the end of the world. You know, you get through it. And that's where you find a lot of innovation, you know, from a business standpoint or, you know, um, medical innovation. Innovation's fascinating. So uh, I guess I'm a big history geek and love, love learning um, from the past. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Your, your, the name of your book, uh, American dream, right? So you say the reality of the collective American dream may be evolving. But what truly makes America great is timeless. Despite the conditions of any given era, you can navigate life setbacks with intestinal fortitude. This is a book for champions in the making, for winners who love winning and will not settle for less than their calling. How do you see the American dream evolving? Because Magda, many will tell you that the American dream is dead or that it never really existed and that it's just a myth for the privileged few. What say you to that? So I will not um, uh, dismiss uh, the fact that many people feel that way. And I understand given circumstances today why many would feel that way mm -hmm. however i feel compelled to enlighten in my own way and show that there is so much more that they clearly have not been um exposed to whether you know going back one layer you know what we were just talking about read books and history and realize you know people have had it a lot worse and a lot harder than we have you know um, people who built our country, they did a lot more without, you know, a cell phone, electricity. <laughs> they did great things without, you know, uh, you know, notifications that people like what they're doing. I mean, seriously, like, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I, I just, it's, it's a combination of, um, or there are a combination of factors which have created this, uh, environment which have created this situation you know technology for sure you know when people are born with an iphone in their hand literally um you're going to grow up a little bit differently you're going to look at things a little bit differently because your access to everything is almost overwhelming it's information overload um and i i, I don't know if you have the thrill of the chase of finding information 
And I'm not saying like, you know, back in the day when we went to the library, you know, to do our research papers, but just trying to figure things out, you know? And uh, so there's that aspect. Then also mm-hmm. the over-medication of Americans, I will say just generally speaking of Americans with psychotropic drugs. And I did get into that in the, in the book um, deeply because of the, from what I saw in the veteran community and the lives that it ended um, because of uh, polypharmacy. Um, so I think factors like these two that I mentioned have created this environment where uh, youth, mostly youth, I say youth are uh, disenfranchised or jaded. Um, and I haven't even talked about economy, you know, good or bad. Okay. Um, just based upon the fact that, you know, technology, information overload, and the uh, misuse of medications that control people's minds and their ability to think for themselves and critical thought, ultimately. Just those two things alone have really um, created a a toxic environment where, Mm. you know, people that, you know, they come out of the room, they're healthy, um, you know, idealistic, you know, uh, talented, skilled, athletic, whatever the case is, they morph, they morph into what we're seeing today, unfortunately. And, you know, where, you know, it's about groupthink and not individuality. And, um, you know, it sets the conditions for uh, uh, nefarious organizations or individuals to have power over, you know, humanity here in our country. And, and that's a shame, you know? So, you know, I did write the book for the younger generations, you know, meaning younger than myself, I'm a Gen Xer, um, because I mean, like yourself, I remember life before all these wonderful technologies, which I absolutely use, enjoy, rely upon. Yes. But I don't let it consume my life. Um, the way I, I believe younger generations or many young uh, of the younger generations have unfortunately um, not gotten around. And, you know, so you could, you know, we could have um, uh, electromagnetic pulse come into the area, you know, New York city area here and, you know, we lose all our connectivity and, and whatnot. I could still think, I could still think critically and figure out what to do next. And, you know, a simple, skill like that, I, I think is lost on, on a lot of folks. And that's a shame, you know, and I'm going to do my part to help them. Um, because when I'm an old person and I'm not, you know, when I'm not, you know, necessarily, you know, uh, leading the charge, you know, it's somebody else's turn. Mm-hmm. I want them to be capable to, to do what needs to be done, you know, uh, to protect and defend our freedoms, our constitution, and our American way of life. So, you know, I think it's important and uh, incumbent upon our generation, you know, to, you know, who still have that energy to, to relay it, to relay it somehow, to help younger generations realize how much power they have. I mean, they have the best of the best, but I do, you know, submit they're in a very hard environment. And, yeah. I was going to say because of connectivity, it's even harder. You know, it was easier to be anonymous in our generation, you know, if that's what you chose to do. And um, 
I think there are, are a lot more pressures for, for uh, younger generations today. And I don't envy that, you know, it's, it's a different type of um, world for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's so true what you're saying. There was a study, uh, a nationwide study that was performed by Cigna, the, mm -hmm. uh, the health services company. Uh, and it was about how America is or was operating under the premise or the conclusion uh, or the supposition that America is currently undergoing a loneliness epidemic with almost 50% of the participants within the study that they did feeling lonely. Uh, unfortunately, it seems that the younger generations that you're referring to are feeling this the most. So the study found that loneliness scores rose among the younger generations, right? With the, with the youngest generation, Gen Z, feeling the loneliest. Mm -hmm. So here's a quote uh, from, the, uh, from the study. Gen Z and millennials spend more time on social media than at any other generation. I'm sorry. Yes, than any other generation. And many officials think that the curated versions, the curated versions people put of themselves online make it difficult to create real connections with others. Social networking sites foster an environment for artificial interactions that provide superficial connections rather than the actual meaningful connections that face-to-face -face interactions provide. In fact, a recent study published by Clinical Psychological Science revealed that adolescents between the ages of 13 and 18 who spent more time on social media and smartphones were also more likely to report mental health issues as opposed to teens who spent more time hanging out with their friends or exercising, uh, doing homework, reading print media. I don't know any teens that are reading print media anymore or attending religious services. So um, as you've said, it appears that the technology that is meant to make us or help us become more connected is actually making us lonelier. Energy levels, you know, there are uh, energy levels when, um, you know, you're standing next to somebody, you can feel their energy, they can feel yours. When you're communicating over a screen, you could see them, you can hear them, but you can't experience the energy levels, you know, and we're human beings, we're made to be social. So, you know, add, you know, 2020 and the pandemic lockdown. I mean, how much, I mean, the stats, I saw um, a stat that the veteran suicide rate, which was already high. Oh gosh, I wish I had the exact number. So I don't, I'm not going to say. Um, well, they, they claim it's 22 a day. It's a lot higher than that. It was. Yeah, you a lot say that in the book. Yeah, you talk about how it's actually much higher than that. Right, right. But uh, uh, the point I was getting at is uh, there's a you know a study that shows that the numbers of active duty and veteran forces uh, this year alone, um, the suicide rates amongst both groups have gone up tremendously. Wow. And uh, I read it about a week ago, and it, you know, not a surprise. You know, and does it mirror the civilian um, population? I, maybe, maybe not, but, um, you know, as a veteran, it's, it's uh, sadder to, you know, even 
you know, see this kind of news, of course, but not a surprise at all. And, um, you know, because a, a lockdown when you're not, you know, back when it was at its worst, right, in the beginning, um, you, you know, when people were prevented from being around other people. I mean, I was in my tiny apartment. <laughs> that was rough. <laughs> the building I was in, um, you know, locked down their amenities. So we didn't have that social space. So I was confined to a very small apartment. And, you know, I'm on the healthy side. I'm on, on a great side. But it was uh, definitely challenging, you know, to not be able to be around people. And I like my alone time, believe me. But at the same point, you know, it's um, unbelievable how much damage has been done to our society. You know, another factor on top of the other factors I'd mentioned earlier, you know, it's a recipe for disaster. And, you know, it's a shame. And that's why, um, you know, all of us that, that have something of value to put forth, you know, um, we, we need to not be selfish and to, uh, you know, pay it forward to those who need it. And I believe, as, as we've spoken about, that the younger generations are the ones who at this point, um, need us the most. So, yes, certainly, older generations, you know, seniors who are living alone and now, you know, with COVID and, and, and whatnot, they're, they're more alone so sure yes that's that's another that's a side of the point but um you know i think certainly uh as as our future leaders they need they need to break through and those of us that can shed any light on ways to break through need to do that um otherwise our future as a nation <laughs> you know uh looks darker than it needs to be and it can be so much better, you know, if we um, start to really address this thoroughly. Right, right. Um, wow. Um, so, okay. So you, you actually have some really powerful advice to kind of help transition, uh, you know, from uh, a life that is kind of, you know, spiraling out that is lonely, that is depressing and, and that, you know, is, is really, um, you know, a struggle uh, for many people who really just are lost. Uh, but I want to talk about, I want to get back to your story because I know we kind of went off on a tangent there um, about how you ended up going from like having an incredible life um, and everything rocking and rolling uh, to really being, uh, you know, in the depths of uh, and the worst part of your, uh, of your life and how you summoned the will to kind of break out of that. Uh, and I, you know, let's go back to when you were a young adult, right? you were, you were a teenager, uh, still maybe you were 19 at this point, but it's your sophomore year of college. Uh, and you transferred to New Jersey Seton Hall. Uh, so you come, so WSRU. So you combined, uh, I believe, business with uh, communications, as your dad ended up suggesting to you. Mm -hmm. um, but the communications part was really driven, I think, by your <laughs> your love of metal and your desire to be part of uh, Seton Hall's iconic hard rock uh, college radio station, uh, the aforementioned WSOU, uh, getting a chance to be part of that radio station. Uh, but along the way, you became very intrigued while you were there. Instead of becoming a disc jockey on WSOU, or maybe you had a few guest spots. I don't know if I've, I've, I've heard you back in the day, but um, 
you actually kind of got sidetracked because you became very intrigued with WS, um, with Seton Hall, excuse me, Seton Hall's ROTC program after you saw some cadets who had been to Army Ranger School? Yes. So I, I did receive a, a letter while I was transitioning over from um, Jersey City State, as it was called back then, um, New Jersey University now. And uh, it mentioned this uh, ROTC program, uh, Cadet Challenge, you know, go to uh, six weeks down at Fort Knox, Kentucky. So I went and it was, it was a blast. <laughs> and I love it. Well, hold on a second. Where we? <laughs> so you, you, you know, I mean, the, you know, the military, none of that was like in your, right? Like in, in your, uh, you know, your viewfinder, like you were, you were going there for business, you were going to, to school for business. Um, you're going to do the communications thing. You thought, hey, really cool. Um, I can go to, you know, uh, and, and, and kind of DJ at WSOU and be part of that scene there, the hard rock scene. ROTC, like, w again, you know, earlier when those seeds were planted about how you loved the military, um, what was it about seeing those cadets who had been off to Army Ranger School? What was it about that that kind of caught your eye? Uh, the challenge, um, the opportunity to, you know, evolve as a person, uh, have more skills. And, you know, of course, the military, you know, you know, exudes um, something beautiful and powerful, yeah. you know, and uh, it attracts, um, you know, people who, who want to be part of something like that, even if they don't fully understand um, what all is involved. So to me, it, was, it, it wasn't the reason I joined later on, a very separate, you know, different time in my life. Um, right. But I had this opportunity. Okay, I got this letter. Let's do this. And, and I did. And I um, earned a scholarship. Uh, but my father talked me out of accepting that scholarship. And, and basically, the scholarship would have um, committed me to a... a um, you know, a period of time uh, in the U.S. military as an officer uh, at, upon, you know, completion of graduation and officer candidate school, but, uh, or not, not OCS, I would have had that with ROTC, um, whatever school they would have gone to, to, to learn my branch, you know. So, um, you know, he, he felt that it would be a distraction to a career path in the corporate world, which is what he did. And um, so I, I don't know. I didn't have as much resolve in myself as a person at 20, 20, 20, 20 years old. Um, so, you know, I, I did not accept the commission, but I have fond memories of uh, Fort Knox in 19, uh, this would have been oh my goodness, 93, 93. Wow. Yeah. Wow. We had a cadre from Vietnam. I remember that. And wow. Yeah, that was that was really cool. Are you? Do you regret not having uh, gone in as an officer, uh, taken the commission? Not at all, because I got to enlist and join when my country needed me most, and um, I I loved, you know, having served and having been a part of what I was a part of when I was a part of it. And we're gonna, we're gonna get to that. All right. Um, but yeah, I was curious because the you know 
again, this trajectory you've been on since you were, uh, you know, a kid, the seeds planted, you know, destiny is a funny thing. Um, but uh, so, okay. So you were awarded that scholarship uh, upon acceptance of that commission uh, as an officer upon graduation, but you didn't take it, as you said, uh, your, your, your dad kind of talked you out of it. And so instead you went to a summer program uh, in Hawaii where you met a Marine in a mosh pit at an anthrax concert. Uh, and after graduation, uh, you moved back to New Jersey and you actually married that Marine uh, as he was transitioning out of the service. And you end up beginning your first professional uh, role or you, you end up, excuse me, you end up uh, in your first professional role, I believe, where uh, you start as a recruiter mm-hmm. for uh, recruiter for computer professionals on Wall Street, placing uh, highly skilled technicians at financial institutions and banks like Goldman Sachs and Chase. Mm-hmm. So yeah. now you're like, you know, like you're in the power seat um, and you're in, you know, you're, you're in where, where the business and deal making and fast money and electricity you're, I mean, you're like now like in the belly of the beast of, of hardcore real business. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, what was it like? What do you, I mean, like, you know, this has been something you've been working since you were a kid. You've always dreamed of being a success story. Um, you always were working and now you're in this, this, um, you know, this opportunity, uh, to, to kind of make a name for yourself in this really fast paced, uh, business world. What was it, what was it like in that first role? It, it was great in so many levels because I was not, um, distracted by, school. <laughs> you know, I could work full time mm-hmm. uh, and earn a full time paycheck, which was awesome. Uh, that's where I wanted to be. Um, but, it, you know, there were things that were missing, of course, you know, because I was starting at the bottom of the, you know, recruiting world and, it, you know, it paid well. And I loved commuting into you know, New York City and, you know, I talk about that, you know, going, you know, um, taking the path and, the, you know, the ferry over and just being part of that commuter back and forth and getting into the rat race, but, <laughs> but, you know, it, it was exciting, you know, at the time. Um, and, you know, it was fulfilling in many, many ways, but then I saw, you know, that the people that I was placing were making, you know, Baku dollars, you know, <laughs> like, there, were they making like $2,000 a day? Yeah. For SAP, SAP consultants, this was in 95. And I thought, wait Please. a minute. I'm not quite there. I need to really get into this technical field. So I made that switch. Yes, you did. So you went, you, you went from being the headhunter <laughs> to wanting to be one of the candidates because you, you, you saw how much money they were making. I became the hunted. <laughs> <laughs> not, a bad, not a bad way to be hunted. Um, yeah. so, so you did that. It's crazy. I mean, you learned to code. You eventually moved. And then uh, from there, you eventually moved on to becoming a Microsoft network administrator. So in the space of a few years, you became uh, very successful. I mean, the jobs were bountiful, you know, and back then we didn't have as many, you know, skilled technicians to do, 
you know, these jobs, IT was new, MIS, as it was called then, you know, management information systems, um, exchange servers, you know, um, uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was great because the technology was evolving constantly, you know, obviously, uh, rollouts, you know, with the new operating systems and, you know, and then have to update the servers and everything. So, um, so I enjoyed the technical aspect. Uh, the pay was great. And, uh, you know, my husband was in that field as well on the Naval side. And um, so we right. had a good life. You know, we had, we worked our hours, you know, it was a Monday through Friday job, but when you're IT, it's kind of around the clock. Um, I talked about spending Y2K in the server room, you know, uh, but everything went well. The, the world, you know, didn't end. Yeah, right. So, you know, we celebrated with the bubbly afterwards, but it, it was, it was, uh, the nineties were very, very lucrative and I was in the right field. So, okay. So yeah, I mean, you know, and you talk about it in the book, um, you know, you guys were doing great. You and your husband, the Marine, you call him the Marine. I love it. So you, you, so you, so you're a young couple. Um, you guys are making great money. Uh, you, you bought a beautiful house in Jersey. You, you've got a 3000 GT Mitsubishi sports car. Um, by the way, I had one as well <laughs> at, uh, around that time. Uh, you've got, you've got a motorcycle. Uh, you and your husband are going on amazing trips and adventures. You're going on cruises. You're going on heavy metal, con you're going to heavy metal concerts around the country. You guys are enjoying life. And then everything changes. One morning, right, a week before you were meant, I believe if I got this right, a week before you were meant to go on a cruise to Tahiti, you watch on TV with your husband, the Twin Towers getting hit by those planes on 9-11. And you have this, besides that, that, pit that you felt in your stomach that we all felt watching that happen. You had a, like a burning desire to do something about it from the, from the minute it was happening, you felt the need to do something about it. And at first it was kind of like, you know, you wanting to get close or as close to ground zero as possible while it was under attack so that maybe you could take photos because you had this great camera and you felt that, hey, if you could take these, these pictures, it you know, might help the FBI later on uh, when they investigate the crime scene. Uh, and then uh, in the days afterward, you were calling the FBI to see how you could kind of help uh, with your IT skills. You thought maybe you could serve that way. But eventually, after a few months, that need to make a difference in the aftermath of what happened uh, that turned into like a burning desire to be sent to the front lines of the war on terror. And that's like a, we're talking like a big jump. You go from, I want to take some photos. Uh, I want to lend my IT skills. I want to help my community. Next thing you know, you're like, you know what? You want to go, you want to go uh, to the front lines. So I'm going to quote you, okay? The fire in my belly was lit and shock turned into anger. I visited the Army Recruiting Office in Montclair, New Jersey in January of 2002. I wanted to deploy overseas and go outside the wire and not be stuck on a base. So I was thinking military police. 
I did not, I did not meet the height requirements for the MPs. So the recruiter recommended civil affairs, which I hadn't heard of. Now this wasn't public affairs, he explained. Civil affairs was the only reserve unit in special operations command. I was intrigued. He further explained that the job deploys soldiers during peacetime and wartime and had special requirements to get in. You would work with the best of the best and be a critical part of everything wherever you go. Boom, I was sold. Just get me there and I'll figure out the rest. So Magda, can you talk about how that fire in the belly developed in the aftermath of 9-11 and what compelled you to leave behind like a perfect life, an abundant life with everything? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's not something, um, you know, many others didn't experience and feel, you know, to, to see the area, you know, you lived in attacked, you know, to see and smell the attack and to know of so many people that, you know, lost their lives. Um, I, uh, you know, my husband uh, worked in a company that was on the 101st floor. He wasn't there that day. And, you know, he was going into a different location and he lost uh, almost 200 coworkers. So it was very, you know, personal for our family, you know. Um, no, I didn't know them, you know, personally. I knew their names, some of, the, some of them, I knew their names. Um, but, you know, obviously he had to keep working. He was IT and the servers were, you know, at the bottom of the rubble. So uh, mm. they had their challenges. But uh, the feeling of being helpless sucked and compelled me to do something. And, you know, when, you know, as, as the smoke cleared and we learned what had happened, you know, um, that made me very angry, you know, because I love my country and how dare they attack our country, you know, and, uh, you know, in multiple locations. And I, I needed to do something. So that's when I decided I'm going to join the Army Reserve. I mean, you know, again, you're, you're, it, it's interesting. Uh, you, I mean, it's like, a t I mean, this is a big shock to the system, right? So, it, I mean, extraordinary times mm -hmm. um, sometimes call for extraordinary measures. Uh, and, you know, you leave this, um, this great life you built for yourself uh, and go off into the unknown. Um, I want to, I want to uh, kind of point something out here for a moment, because earlier on you described how in working as a headhunter on wall street, um, that while you were there in that recruitment, uh, firm, you said that a senior level player at the company, uh, took you to lunch and gave you feedback regarding your clothes. Uh, she suggested that you invest in dressing and looking the part of a power player on wall street, but you, you didn't quite follow her advice. I'm going to quote you. How would I ever aspire to be the success she was if I didn't dress the part? It made sense, but I didn't know the first thing about looking all put together. And I certainly didn't have the cash to afford several outfits that cost hundreds of dollars. Obviously, those were all excuses I told myself and believed. The truth is, 
though I did not want it at the time, because I'm sorry, the truth is, though I did not know it at the time, because I did not know myself enough, I actually didn't want to pay the price to look the part, to have the job badly enough. Now, Magda, I want to kind of make a correlation here because later on in the book, as you talk about, okay, now you're going to Iraq, you're leaving behind your, your life, right? We had all the toys, all the accoutrements of uh, a successful mm -hmm. lifestyle. You're going, uh, in, you know, into, into a combat zone. And you realize that the contact lenses that you wore would not cut it in the desert. And that also glasses, yeah, you can wear glasses, but that they're a liability in combat. So you went out and spent $5,500 on what was at the time a new form of LASIK surgery to correct your eyesight. So is this where the passion to be what you truly seek to become means that you will do whatever it takes, you'll invest whatever it takes, you'll leave behind whatever you have. Uh, and, you know, that if you're not willing to do those things, if you're not willing to invest in a particular pursuit and go all in, then perhaps you really don't want to be there. 100%. You know, it's a perfect uh, double example, which which really shows when you know what you really, 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 really want to do, you're going to commit on all levels. Um, you know, so many of us, of course, when we're younger, we're, we're led down paths that they're not bad paths, but they're, they may not be the path that we're meant to, uh, you know, to be on or to be on for a long time. And, you know, that's what I was uh, experiencing early in in my career and you know it, it obviously at this point when um i enlisted i was 29 i wanted to do this like i was very certain of it you know this wasn't someone else's suggestion or anything like that this came from within so it was very clear to me i had clarity at that point and so it made decisions easier yeah and then i'm gonna fast forward a little bit um, because you come back from uh, uh, your first deployment in Iraq after uh, being there for about 10 months where you lost your friend Nikki, a 19-year-old girl who was killed by a roadside bomb days prior to you and her riding those uh, very same convoys uh, together and, uh, and uh, endured uh, a massive uh, siege of your compound in Bakuba, where you were under attack for days by Muqtada al-Sadr's Mahdi army. And you came home to find out your, your husband had written a letter, the Marine had written a letter to a state elected official to get you kicked out of the military. Worse, you also found out upon coming back from that deployment that your parents had conspired with your husband, with the Marine. And the coup de grace was that while this was all happening, you were attempting to train for and pass selection for an active duty civil affairs unit in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which traditionally had been comprised of former U.S. Army Special Forces, uh, which you ended up not making after one particularly brutal test that although you completed, you missed the standard by only minutes. And now you're like, what the hell's going wrong here? Um, you know, you know, your husband, 
is conspiring to get you kicked out of the military, which you are like completely passionate about. Your parents are siding with him. You didn't make this this uh, special unit you wanted to get into, and you know you're thinking, what else could go wrong? And it's interesting that your prescription or mantra for getting past times like this became roll the throttle. So I'm going to quote you. You say, do you want to know my secret to getting past the problem? Accelerate and move past the problem as quickly as possible. How? Add more problems to it. <laughs> Add more problems to it. So can you tell, you know, that's, you know, really the antithesis of what most people under that kind of pressure would do. Um, when people are, are kind of getting hit with one problem, they're struggling not to crumble. You're getting hit left, right, and center. Uh, and you're like, the only way to get past this is to take on more challenges. Yeah. Yeah. You got, you don't want to be stagnant, you know, cause that's when you start to die and go regress. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, bad things happen in life, you know, but you've got to keep moving forward and um, literally rolling the throttle, just like, you know, when you ride a motorcycle and uh, <laughs> I can think of a time I was on the New Jersey Turnpike and, you know, in my little Buell Blast, little 500 CC and um, a box truck was coming down a lane and didn't see me. And then another truck was in the lane right next to it. And I had to literally roll the throttle to push forward and get through because if I didn't, I would have been a box truck sandwich. So um, you apply that to life. You know, you just got to push through. That's the time when, you know, you, you find out what you're made of. Are you going to, you know, be a turtle and crawl into your shell, you know, for more than a day, or are you going to push forward and get out of that situation? And into a different situation. It may not be a better situation, but it's going to get you out of that situation. And you have to, I, I don't know, it just seems to be the natural thing to do. That's how I've lived my life. It served me well. Um, you know, why sit and idle in a bad spot and run out of gas? Yeah, well, well, you certainly didn't idle um, while you were waiting to be deployed again. You know, everyone's like, why the hell do you want to go back, right? And, and they're like, you know, Khalifa loves war. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's what you say in the book. Khalifa loves war, which you said sounds crazy, but you did love it. Um, but uh, you used that time to um, use uh, your military tuition assistance to work on a master's degree and study asymmetric war. Um, as, you're, as you're kind of waiting to be deployed again, and that opportunity does come up. So like six months later, you get another shot to go back. And so you talk about, you know, um, more, you know, the issues piling up. So you go back and you know what? You start, you, you know, you start getting it, you start getting it again because you end up with some, some really toxic people in, mm -hmm. when you, when you go there initially, initially. Um, so once you got to Iraq, your team leader and some of the other civil affairs guys that you knew well from Fort Bragg, that seemed to be good to go, like Roger and Ted, were no longer gung-ho once they got, you know, into the suck, right? They turned out to be frustrated and stressed and scared, and they seemed to have animosity for being forced to deploy back to Iraq. In particular, uh, your sergeant, Ted, 
uh, initially you thought you were going to be the sergeant, but this guy, Ted, ends up being the sergeant. Uh, and he would make comments to you like, why would a pretty girl like you volunteer to serve another combat tour? And why are you not a mother yet? And uh, he also says, why can't I just lock you in your room? So clearly there's a difference between gung-ho professional soldiers who have the drive to fight and those who regret that they signed up and resent having to be deployed to combat zones. Um, and it seems that you found a fair bit of this toxicity among some of those you worked with. That really surprised me. Um, and, you know, it, you know, again, having had to deal with what you were dealing with back at home with your, you know, your husband, the Marine and your parents and, and trying to get you out of the military. Now you've got some, you know, some leaders that are extremely toxic I mean, it, it seems like one hit after the other. How did, how did this hit you? Because, you know, you're always thinking, at least if you're on the outside, like myself, you're thinking, man, everyone in the, in the military, you know, they're, they're in the thick of it. They're gung-ho. They're up for the fight. They're inspired. They're motivated, you know, but obviously not everybody is. No, no. I caught the, you know, the intersection of um, the demand the increased demand on uh, the force mm -hmm. for, you know, in our case, civil affairs um, soldiers and uh, the lack of supply of properly trained soldiers. So uh, that team, you know, was comprised of people who didn't necessarily want to do that job, you know, didn't, you know, they, they joined the army under, uh, you know, a different job, but they were told to do this job. So they didn't want to be there. And, you know, working with people who, and this doesn't have to do just with the military, but any team, any small team, when you're working with people that don't want to be there and don't want to do the job and you're the only one that does, it's not a great um, uh, relationship right there. So yeah, it, was, it definitely had its challenges. You know, I, I couldn't believe it. This was my second tour and um, you know, some, there was no guidebook. Uh, I remember attempting to reach out to you know my chain of command who were you know located in different areas and um across the country and we didn't you know obviously communications was not like you know <laughs> we didn't have cell phones <laughs> yeah uh, i'm making a joke because you know things have changed um but but it was challenging now you know looking back i i definitely you know things happened that you know yeah i found myself in a position where i was scared and I felt they didn't have my back. Um, you know, I talk about some of it in there, yeah, but, yeah. but, but, you know, years later, what I've been out 13 years now, um, I was lucky, you know, I made it back without incidents and harm to me. Um, a lot of other soldiers and service members didn't and their stories went to the grave with them. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm not even in this, example referring to to ones who were you know killed in combat you know through through the the various methods but uh even um you know certainly uh those who took their own lives either in country or when they returned um or those who lived with those ghosts of things that happened to them you know either physically uh, men and women not you know everybody thinks just just women um or you know even you know not even you know, of course, everybody conjures up the thought of a, you know, sexual assault, which of course is, is, is an issue, a big issue, like I said, for men and women in, in the military, but also uh, other 
you know, instances, you know, of, um, you know, where integrity uh, was, was questioned and, you know, mm-hmm. leaders failed at leading uh, at different levels and, you know, bad things happened, you know, um, and there's so many instances that, you know, people will never really know the backstory, true story, what happened, but, but it is a reality, you know, and everybody has their own story. You know, I'm not here to tell other people's stories, right. but I have appreciation for the fact that, you know, even though um, I went through, you know, my own ordeal, you know, I made it through. What didn't kill me made me stronger. And, you know, it seemed, you know, time and distance, you know, of course helps uh, for sure, you know, absolutely. But I did for many years, um, uh, the combination of what I was exposed to with, you know, in the environment in terms of, you know, the burn pits and, and toxins and whatnot, and the experiences I had, you know, with that team, you know, uh, that definitely um, changed me and how I view things and do things or, or whatnot, you know. So fortunately, I'm in a great place now. And, um, and it's wonderful, you know, but I, I feel terrible for, those who find themselves in those situations and don't have anyone to talk to, because like I didn't have anyone to talk to that I could trust that would understand, you know, cause it's kind of hard to be like, Oh, and this just happened. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like I, you know, and that's why I share, that's why I, I share my story right there. Yeah. I mean, I could fit I, when you read the book and you find out what happened to you with that, you know, you know, initially in that second deployment, it, you know, I felt so frustrated for you because of what was going on. We, we won't tell the whole story now. I implore people to buy the book and read about what was going on there with the interpreter that they were using. And I mean, the whole thing was just crazy. Um, how, you know, how, uh, you know, they just, they were setting, uh, Roger and Ted were setting the interpreter off against you and back and forth. It was just seemed insane what was happening. But, um, and I don't want to diminish the fact that you actually, in your second deployment, you also did get a chance to work with some incredible leaders as well after those idiots you got to work with the guys from Task Force 300 um, who were incredible leaders. And, you, you know, you had a chance to work with the hardest charging warriors of the highest caliber. So certainly you got to see what a great culture does look like. And so I'd like to hear from you on that. You know, forget about the toxic um, people. Um, you got past that. What didn't kill you made you stronger. And then your opportunity to work with some of the best of the best from the 82nd Airborne um, you know, task force 300, man, you know, th- those guys are at another level. So what was the culture like there compared to, you know, with, with the other group? Um, can you just, des- can you describe the difference in what you learned there? Sure. So we have, a, we have a phrase, um, in the military and the army, what right looks like. And there was a lot of what right looks like within, you know, the unit and the time that I was, um, supporting that unit. And, uh, you know, leadership style, the capability, the skills, you know, it goes back to training, unit cohesiveness. Um, and these are things I, I will bear mention that, you know, do translate to the civilian world. You know, um, if, if you structure your business with those elements, you know, your business, you know, you're going to retain people, you're going to retain, you're going to attract better people, retain better people, because people who, you know, have that champion mindset want to be around other champions and are mm-hmm. willing to do the extra work to, you know, to achieve, you know, to get a fact, to get results, you know, so um, it's the same concept, you know, so I'm very fortunate and blessed that my last few months, you know, uh, the last six 
months that I was um, in country that while the, the, the bad side was it was the most intense. And that's when, uh, you know, because of the, the surge, um, you know, if we look back at history, was, you know, we, we lost so many troops and, and I knew a lot of these troops. So that was, that was the bad side. Um, the good side personally was that I had such an amazing experience, you know, where, you know, I grew, you know, tactically as a soldier, as, as a, as an NCO, as a leader. And, um, you know, I learned my thresholds about stuff in life and, you know, um, I'm grateful for that. You know, when you came back, um, so, so now you come back and, um, you spend a decade like in like a really dark place. Cause you know, you, you leave on that high, um, and you don't want it to end. Right. You, when you, you say here when, you know, so when your deployment ended uh, that second time, you felt as if you were kicked out of the womb. You wanted to go right back to Iraq, to the battlefield, but admittedly you weren't well. So like two days after you got back, you were watching the news inside a trailer and saw a headline about a massive double, uh, you know, IED explosion uh, at the compound you had just left where nine soldiers that you knew were killed when the schoolhouse collapsed from a from that blast. And that just devastated you mentally um, because you couldn't help. You couldn't even communicate with anyone who was there because comms would have been locked down. And that seemed like a tipping point for you. So I'm going to quote you. You said, I was tired. I felt like shit physically and mentally. I was disconnected from everything and everyone. I missed my friends and they weren't here with me. Uh, and this is when a pivotal moment occurred, uh, Magda, because you, you don't have, uh, you're going through a divorce with the Marine now. You know, he had conspired to get you kicked out. That was it with him at that point. You're not really talking much with your parents, obviously, because they had conspired with him against you. Um, you feel like you're all alone. Everyone you know is back in Iraq. You feel helpless. I'll quote you. You say, I sat up and I looked towards the kitchen counter and I saw my purchase from earlier in the day. I bought a bottle of Jack Daniels, uh, but I'm not sure why I bought that bottle because I didn't end up drinking the whiskey. I looked at that bottle of alcohol on the marble surface and was compelled to drink it all knowing while it would not necessarily solve anything, it would temporary, temporarily reduce the pain I was in, the pain in my heart and the pain in my head. That moment was a golden hour for me. As I looked at it, I also knew that the minute I took that first drink, given the state I was in, I would be pressing quit on life. I would be turning towards something unnatural to escape my pain. Three decades of something what I don't know forced me to push through that night and not quit. So thinking back now, Magda, what, what stopped you? I, I don't know what the word is, but um, I'll say stubbornness. You know, I think um, I couldn't give up on myself as much as I was partially okay with that. I, I couldn't. I couldn't, I had to take 
you know, give, give, give another day an opportunity. And, and I did, and I'm glad I did. But, um, you know, and that's something that a lot of veterans have, have uh, encountered in their lives at some point after their service, usually. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many have pushed through, but many have not. And, you know, um, it's, it's amazing thinking back, you know, like I've come so far in the 13 years and, you know, I've figured out a success path, but it wasn't overnight. You know, I had that endurance. So I talk about endurance, you know, as part of the dream elements, the acronym in the book. Um, it, if you believe in yourself and you have faith that you will push through and you can turn things around, you will. But if you don't, the minute you, you lose that last thread of hope, then you're, you're giving up. And mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah. And I, I, I'm blessed. I'm fortunate that I, uh, you know, kept going. Fortunate that you're so stubborn. Um, <laughs> Because for the, well, for the next decade, you, you suffered, right? You say you suffered in silence. You say that I had mastered the switch of not connecting and not being emotionally tied to anyone. It kept me alive. It kept me safe. It also kept me unattached and unfeeling. And that was dangerous. Right? You also say that you were trapped in your own world. You didn't get out much. You'd created your own prison. You aren't living, you are merely existing. So, you know, a decade of that. And, you know, in, in that decade, you'd start, you know, you had started your own business. Uh, well, you were working as a military contractor, I think. And then you started a business, but you were just, you, you were unconnected to people. You were working hard. That's all you were doing. You were working, 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 uh, but you were dealing with all of these issues. You were dealing with health issues. You were dealing with psychological issues. Right. And you were dealing with uh, loneliness. You were detached from the world. Uh, and as you say, you had made a, you had made the perfect prison for yourself. What was the first significant step or the first significant action that you took to finally breaking free of this decade long cage that you had made for yourself? Sure. Um, I would say it was uh, health and nutrition. So I had been, you know, a healthy person, always worked out, you know, um, and I didn't eat badly, but I started making uh, uh, changes to, you know, my types of workouts um, and what I was eating. And I started to notice changes in myself and how I felt. So of course, you know, I kept chasing that and trying to improve that and improve that. And as I continued to do that, I improved myself and started to heal from the inside out. Uh, I just want to clarify the kind of diet that you were on. So uh, nutrition wise, you were, you were on a paleolithic diet, a paleo diet, you were going into ketosis. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, so I started about 10 years ago and I haven't looked back. Um, it's something that worked for me and I continued uh, with that, um, yeah, for 10 years now. What did it do? You, cause you talk about how for the first, you, you talk about your brain switching back on. So mm -hmm. what, you know, what had gone on? You, you know, you had mentioned that you had had exposure to like the burn pits, 
while you were in Iraq, you mentioned that, um, you know, you had, of course, uh, been in that whole area that was toxic during 9-11. You talked about having like uh, something on your helmet uh, that was emitting a ton of uh, EMF radiation in your comms. You know, there are a lot of circumstances in the environment when you go off to war. Um, the, then there's, there's all the blasts and the, you know, the, the TBI. Um, how did going into ketosis and your nutrition kind of wake you up and snap you out of all of this? Right. So it, when you're exposed to, you know, a lot of toxins and you have free radicals and all kinds of bad things going on in your body, even though you might look fine on the outside, um, you know, you need to get that out of your system. Now, on one level, first of all, I, I'm one of those people that, you know, I don't tolerate uh, gluten and dairy, you know, but I didn't know that until I eliminated it from my system and my diet altogether. So when I did that, um, I started noticing, you know, an increase in energy uh, and clarity in, in my thought. So it was polluting not just, you know, my physical body and, and having, you know, physical, um, you know, manifestation, but also my brain as well, you know. So uh, that was the, you know, first effect, lots of energy. I was able to sleep better. Then I turned to uh, superfoods and I started putting nutrients into my body that helped me optimize, you know, my, my health overall. So I, I went from, you know, maybe not the greatest health, even though I thought I was mm. in, you know, to, to healthier. And then I supercharged, you know, from, and this wasn't overnight, this was a journey and it's a continuous journey. I continue to improve upon it, but I feel great. You know, now I'm approaching 47 and I have, I certainly have more energy physically and mentally than I did 25 years ago. How is that possible? It's amazing. And, you know, I know you talk, once you get exposed, cause I went through the same uh, thing myself. Um, you know, I was very overweight. Um, I went on a, uh, uh, a, ket a ketosis like diet. I went, you know, kind of paleolithic, but then I switched uh, quickly moved to uh, very high ketotic uh, nutritional uh, regime. And then I went uh, more towards a carnivore style diet. And I, I haven't, uh, I, I've been this way for about uh, over four years now. So I know what you're talking about. I understand how the brain, it's incredible how the brain switches on uh, when, you, when you eat the way you're eating. Uh, but what's really amazing is that you were for 10 years psychologically suffering uh, physically, uh, you know, not your best. And you were just like completely in the dark. Um, and how by making that change with your nutrition and by exercising, you, you ended up to be fair, curing yourself of what would of what most people would end up going on a litany of uh, uh, a litany of pharmacology to to fix. They'd go on a litany of of prescribed medications, typically to to deal with all the issues that they were facing. And I've talked to a lot of veterans uh, who have PTS. You clearly had some from your from your book. I mean, I hope I'm not offending you here, but you clearly had some form of PTS. Um, or maybe it was TBI or, or some, 
you had some of, you know, lasting effects from what you went through. Most do. Um, but, you know, I've spoken to a lot of guys uh, that have come out of this and who are really anti-prescription medication because of what you call the polypharma, you know, the multiple drugs that you're given and the way they interact for ever, I mean, whether the, the antidepressants, the anti-anxiety medication on top of the opioids, on top of the, you know, it's just like one drug after another, after another, you know, the, uh, the corticosteroids that, that, I mean, it's just, it's a nonstop cornucopia of, uh, you know, prescription medications. You, you cured yourself or, you know, you, you healed yourself with nutrition and with physical fitness. Is that the case? Yes. In its simplest terms. Yes, absolutely. Um, I absolutely have turned my life around, um, how I feel, what I think, uh, my performance mentally, physically, it's unbelievable. I mean, like I said, it's a journey. I, I only touched upon some of it in the book. Uh, everybody has to find, you know, their, their own paths, but the bottom line is you have the power to really change things. And I, I don't think I'm done. I mean, I still, um, I think there's even more, you know, that I can, um, you know, uh, optimize and, okay. and it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling, you know, because I remember when I was a little kid thinking, Oh my God, that's, you know, almost 47 middle age. I, I, I don't feel that way at all. I really do not feel middle aged at all. Um, I have so much energy and, it's just perfect timing. Everything in life is coming together. I have uh, a zest for life that um, probably even greater than I had before 9-11, before I went to war. And, you know, and here's the thing, and this is what, you know, humbles me too, is I'm grateful for each day that I wake up feeling amazing because um, your, your, you know, cellular health is very important. And if there's damage done to your cells, they can only uh, you know, replicate and, and reproduce uh, so, you know, so much uh, telomeres, the little telomeres, the little feet at the end of your cells, they can only, you know, continue. I think it's like 14 times they can um, reproduce new cells. Mm -hmm. So if you have enough damage that's done, uh, you, you can't reverse, you know, the feature. So, you know, that's another reason I'm very, very, very um, adamant and disciplined about maintaining um, excellent health and investing in myself in um, proper supplementation to assure that I'm doing everything I can uh, to, you know, maintain longevity, healthy longevity, because that's important and nothing is guaranteed in life. So, um, but the, the, the creme de la creme, um, you know, and I, I captured it in the book were the epiphanies I was having while writing the book, because I was able, my mind, my, you know, physical brain, you know, I was able um, to get to such a great place where I could actually heal myself mentally or emotionally um, from the past, you know, from traumas of my past, uh, because I'd gotten, you know, my health right, my brain right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I do share that in the book, uh, the epiphanies I personally had, but also that's what this freedom triangle, you know, uh, what was born, you know, a, okay. uh, over a year ago. We're going to get to that now because um, now I want to talk about, okay, so we've gone on this journey uh, to, you know, 
throughout your life, obviously an abridged version of it. You got to read the book, uh, uh, guys and gals, to really appreciate Magda's uh, true journey through all of this. But the first thing you did was you, f- you fixed your nutrition, you fixed your health uh, with exercise and, uh, and diet, exercise and nutrition. Now I want to talk about you know, the, the mindset, the principles, because you're, you, know, you say it in the book, life is about systems. And you put together, I've pulled out of your book, like a, lo- you know, a, f- a fair number of lessons. Um, I'm going to just talk about the, the ones that I find the most profound uh, and ask you to comment on them. Uh, you've been very uh, accommodating with your time, by the way, Magda. So thank you for that. I'll keep you a little longer because I want to go through these, uh, you know, these, these lessons um, and we'll get to the freedom triangle and what that's all about as well. So um, firstly, you talk about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. So talk to us about, you know, because if you're going to, if you're going to rise from the ashes if you're going to, or simply build a great life for yourself, we all start on the bottom, right? Whether you've risen and fallen and have to rise again like you did, or whether you're just starting out in life. Knowing these things at the start gives you a huge advantage. So, you know, a lot of the people who are listening to this, they're probably not that young, so they're not starting out, but they certainly look to optimize their lives like you have, uh, or they're looking to rise again. And so... Let's talk about, uh, you know, the, the type of mindset and the strategies that you have used to become successful after being down and out. Growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Absolutely. So uh, fixed mindset is that of the victim mentality. Um, the person who makes excuses for their action or inaction. Uh, growth mindset knows that there is always a way to push through, to push forward, to figure it out, uh, regardless of the duration of time or the pain involved. Right. So, um, so growth. So, a growth mindset means um, it, you have to let go of some things to have a growth mindset. And you talk about that. You talk about anchors weighing you down. You talk about anchor points in your life, recognizing those anchor points, but also letting go of the anchors. Because if you don't, you're not going to have a growth mindset. You're going to get, you're going to keep like getting stuck, being tethered to something fixed. Can you, can you elaborate? What is an anchor point and what are the anchors that people need to let go of in order to have a growth mindset? Sure. Anchor points are powerful forces of energy. Those are good things. Okay. I know we have the word anchor in both. Um, And I explain how you can, you know, identify what those are and then really understand, okay, why, why is it that you, you know, you feel a certain way about something. Okay. Um, Anchors are things that weigh us down and hold us back. And these are self-limiting beliefs or things that prevent us. So if, if you are on say medications or drugs, and they affect your thinking, your mood, those are anchors. Those are holding you down. Those are keeping you from moving forward in your life. So it could be people. It could be toxicity of people around you, people who think small while you're thinking big, you know, people who have that victim or fixed mindset. 
Um, if you're surrounding yourself with those folks, whether, and when I say surrounding, I don't, I don't necessarily mean just physically, but if those are the people who you communicate with, that you listen to, that you speak with, that you're um, listening to essentially, then that those are going to be anchors in your life. So there are a litany of anchors, but we need to understand what it is that's holding us back from moving forth. Okay. So, right. The, the anchor points you talk about, those are those, those take contemplation. Those take really reviewing like you did your life via writing a book and just, and you know, but for everyone it's different, but kind of thinking through those moments in their lives where they end up, they keep going back to something in their life that was a pivotal moment and they keep going back to it. Uh, and when you understand what that was, when you understand, you know, what that is, those, those anchor points, um, they're like the missing pieces in your life that if you recognize them as an anchor point, then that's going to, you know, help kind of, um, set you, uh, up for having a good foundation psychologically. So that, that's what you meant by the anchor points versus the anchors that weigh you down. Correct. Correct. The anchor points, you can think of them as energy force fields, okay, that you cannot physically see, mm-hmm. but they get, as you mentioned, they keep pulling you back to that. And they're not bad things, but having an understanding of what the anchor points are in your life are going to enable you to make decisions, to make decisions clearly, and to have that context so that you understand why you're making those decisions. And could that be, for instance, just as an example for anyone who wants to better understand that, uh, New York City, living in a certain place is an anchor point for you. Yeah, yeah it absolutely was. And, um, you know, I'm happy to announce that I found my, my uh, uh, next anchor point in life. I've, um, I guess my ability to identify anchor points now that I know what I'm looking for has, uh, you know, led me to, uh, with clarity, to, to see a little bit of the future, which, which is great. Um, but it, it's exciting to, to be able to look at your own life and figure these things out yourself. Sometimes people will, you know, if you're fortunate enough, you know, the right person, um, whether it's a temporary or permanent person in your life, will reveal something about yourself to yourself that is of value for you. And, and that's a blessing. That's wonderful if you have that. But if you're able, if you don't have that, and most of us don't, you know, have that um, benefit, if you are able to find it yourself, you are so much more empowered and you, again, know yourself even more so. Mm. Yeah. Um, and again, if, if anyone wants to better understand this, it, it's worth reading your book. You'll, you'll get a much clearer picture of, of what this is all about. But you have a bunch of epiphanies that you've listed uh, as well uh, in the book that you came upon. Uh, one is that you say that your pathway should lead to the ability to know yourself without input from others. And that is a very powerful state of being. You know, how, you know, it's very, how does one go about learning who they are minus with the input? Because most people are an amalgamation of what, of what, you know, their perception is through the eyes of others. Uh, The path of self-discovery to find out, do, do you have to live alone at like, you know, like a, uh, like a monk for 10 years, like you did, you know, kind of like in your, and then write this book to figure out who you are. I mean, that is like not an easy thing to do. How do you, how would you recommend someone yeah. do that? 
Well, no, it, you don't have to do that. Um, <laughs> and I was a functional monk. <laughs> um, that's a joke. But um, so, <laughs> so no, there are many shortcuts that you can take. Uh, first of all, you have to have that intent, that desire to, you know, find that out about yourself, that, that curiosity. If you don't have that, you're, you know, it may not be handed to you. So, you know, right. your reticular activation system in your brain is not going to pick up on those cues that are out there that are trying to show you, you know, the, the mirror in front of your face. Um, you have to have the ability to be able to confront what you see and you may not like it. Okay. You may not like it, but you have to, if you're on this journey to finding out exactly what it is, you know, you have to accept it for what it is. So in other words, you have to have integrity with yourself. You have to be open-minded. Um, I can't say I was open-minded and, and had that um, desire you know, say six, seven, eight years ago, because I was just not in a great spot. Like that was not, I can't, it wasn't a priority and it, I just was not ready for it, you know, but when I was ready, you know, um, I was, I was able to find it, but the, the, the best trick I could say is, is to, you know, rid your body of pollutants that may be preventing you from finding that. And on the flip side of that, and that ties to the, the health freedom point of, the freedom triangle, uh, you, you can consider optimizing. Um, our brain is powerful. And if you take care of your brain properly, you're able to, I believe, tap into areas of your brain that other people, you know, would not be able to tap into their respective areas of their brain. And I was able to do that. And I was, you know, um, that was my intent in, in the end of the book is to show how I was able to do that. So, you know, I'm, I'm not the rocket scientist, you know, I'm, I'm the layman who kind of just figured a few things out. And, uh, you know, I want to uh, submit that to those who are interesting, that they can go on their journeys, if that's a priority to them in their lives. Let's talk about how you did that, because, you know, now let's get into the freedom triangle. It's been staring me, you know, and all of us right in, you know, right there, the freedom triangle. Um, what is the freedom triangle? Yes. So it's a mental state of limitless. When you get to the point in life where you know who you are and you understand yourself and what makes you tick and you know where you're going because you have clarity, it's crystal clear. It's powerful. It's a state where you have inner peace. You have, you know, perhaps found forgiveness. You've let the past be the past and that's not holding you down. You are literally at that point, just like when a child is born into the world, you know, the world's wide open. You're, you're at that type of rebirth in your life, despite anything that has happened to you or despite the current conditions. And that's a very, very, very powerful feeling because when you are experiencing troublesome periods of time by having that within yourself, having identified it, having found your freedom triangle, you're able to know exactly what to do next. Like it's clear to you. So um, it's based on the premise of time freedom, health freedom, and mind freedom. And I believe mind freedom is the hardest uh, or the most challenging to attain. Um, it's less, least prescriptive because we all have our different journeys and our different anchors that hold us back. Um, some people have some elements of the freedom triangle and, you know, some, some don't have any, you know, but we can all achieve it. Now, the reason, you know, I felt it important to, to capture and speak to it is because I believe some people never find their freedom triangle and 
I believe some people find it only at the end of their lives where they have clarity for some reason, you know, their, their life's taken away and ticking away and they're able to see things clearly that it's too late at that point, Mm. you know? So it's, it's powerful and it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Lay it out. So you've got, you know, again, just to make sure I understand it. So the triangle itself Mm -hmm. got, you know, the the three types of freedom, Mm -hmm. right. In order to find that clarity and, and kind of live a, um, a fulfilling, successful life, you need three types of freedom, right? Correct. And and, and I would say it's even more, it's more than success. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's really significance. Ah. And and that's the next level. And and that's why I I do discuss somewhat, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how. Yes, you do. I felt, yes, yes, this is more of, you know, this fills in what may be missing from that. Um, It's, and it's modern, you know. Um, So I, I believe that the freedom triangle is, you know, can be an answer for many people to get to that next level in their life if they're ready for it. You know, and some people aren't, like I, I said, as in my example, you know, eight years ago, I wasn't ready for this, you know? Um, so I, I do have, um, I want to encourage, you know, your audience and anybody who may be interested, if they go to uh, the website, thefreedomtriangle.com, there is a free download that will prompt them um, with three secrets to finding their freedom triangle. And they can print the pages and take their time to reflect upon their answers. You know, this isn't something you breeze through. You know, you want to really, if, if you are really looking to get on this journey, uh, you want to, you know, answer it to the best of your abilities, put it away, think about it, and come back to it. Um, I will be... Uh, uh, eventually releasing a, a course, a digital course that will get much more in depth because this can be, it's a simple concept, but it can get more complex because we as human beings are complex. So uh, it's simple in, in its definition, but uh, because we are, you know, interesting creatures, you know, um, and we have a lot of different dimensions to us. Uh, I, I think, I'll be learning more about it too, as I, you know, you know, hear from more people who go down this journey as well. Right. Um, so, mm-hmm. so just to make sure I understand, so you've got, all right, so we've got health freedom, the, mm-hmm. the freedom triangle is health freedom, mm-hmm. time freedom, and mind freedom, right? Correct. Correct. So, you know, time freedom is probably one of, one of the ones that's probably a little easier for uh, or, or more common that people may have, you know, uh, some people would say that's based on financial freedom. And while that can be a component of it, um, I will present the example that I think where, you know, where it's not, like if you think of say a doctor who, you know, makes, you know, lots of money and, and or, you know, and, and, and is, is, is wealthy, um, but doesn't have the time because that doctor is tied to, you know, the responsibility of, you know, working at the hospital and, and, and whatnot, you know, so they may have the financial freedom in their life, but they don't have the time freedom to be able to go down this journey and to really reflect upon themselves and their lives and, you know, realize that, that have that time and space right there. So that's, you know, that's one little nuance of time freedom, but I do believe that a lot 
of people have achieved that point in life and but they're missing the other two points so um, how do you how do you get health freedom so what is health freedom actually not how do you get it what what does health freedom right. mean right so so i have the definition in the book but in layman's terms there's two parts there's you do not want to be bound by that which controls you uh from a health standpoint so if you're you know drugs alcohol medications whether it's prescribed or non-prescribed um, anything that's going to affect your, you know, your mood, your thoughts, you're a slave to that, you know, so that's not health freedom. So it's the absence of those, those items. And then, um, but also your environments as well. It could be the air you're breathing, the water you're drinking. Those are, you know, factors as well, uh, that can be affecting you and how your brain works, right? Even if you look physically fine, like, like I did, you know, um, you know, eight, nine, 10 oh. years ago, um, that's the first part. The second part is the optimization of, you know, I, I went down the route of, well, it was, it was more than superfoods. It was uh, lifestyle habits, high performance lifestyle habits um, that really allowed me to get that restful sleep, to be able to have good dreams, to be able to access weaknesses of my brain that I never otherwise would have been able to access to solve my own problems. It's And, and is that, and then so does that then lead to what you call mind freedom? Mm -hmm. So they kind of overlap. Right. Uh, so the mind freedom part though is, you know, it, there's the acknowledgement sense where, you know, you recognize you've taken that look in the mirror in the ugly mirror, you know, right. and, uh, you know, but you've come to peace, you know, with, with could be, you know, the past with your demons, right. with um, who you are, you know, as a person. And it's, uh, you know, you, you, you've got that, you've checked that box, but you're also able to look to the future. And, you know, for a long time, you know, I went through, um, you know, a point where someone, you know, someone asked me about the future, you know, what, what, what do you see in your future, you know, goals and plans for the future. It was a, like, if I close my eyes and try to answer, you know, it was a black screen. It was very empty. And, and that's, you know, um, that's bad, you know, and a lot of people are there now and, and it was a point of frustration because I realized I, I, I couldn't, I had no color in my future. Um, I couldn't even force myself to imagine it, but now I do, now I do. It's, it's, you know, uh, you know, high definition surround sound and it's beautiful, wow. but, but, I, but I had to get myself right through this journey to get there, you know, and it took me a long time, but no regrets, you know, no regrets because this is so powerful and, you know, I want to get it to as many people as possible that can benefit from it. Going back to what we, you know, spoke about earlier, the younger generations, you know, um, on one hand, you know, some of them haven't lived enough years on the planet really, you know, yet on an average to necessarily fully benefit from this. I think this is, you know, on some levels, um, perhaps, and I will find out over time, uh, you know, especially when I have the course that's out there. Um, you know, I think this is a great pre pre uh, preventative, if you will, you know, for younger generations, but it's probably going to be more uh, uh, effective, maybe, you know, for older generations who, uh, let's face it, each decade that goes by, we all have more collective baggage, you know, um, right. and our thoughts, experiences, you know, um, you know, that things that shape us in life, you know, um, and I shared the you know, an example in the book of, of uh, during the epiphanies and how I was able to, you know, really find peace with, you know, a family member, you know, despite, um, uh, you know, a lot of yeah. strife in the past and, and having that, 
you know, at the right time or in enough time is beautiful and powerful, you know, because we never know when, you know, we're all, you know, called to a further mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a beautiful thing to be able to have found that peace. Uh, so, you know, you said, uh, when I, you corrected me, cause when I said, um, having a life of, uh, fulfillment and success, mm-hmm. uh, and you said not so much success, but significance. And mm-hmm. I've, I've written here what you say in the book, you say, while success leaves clues, significance leaves signs. And so that's, you know, and it's, that, that's very powerful because, you know, what you're talking about. And again, I implore everyone to read your book because there's so much more. I mean, I have so many more questions to ask you, but we're, you know, I've, you know, I've taken so much of your time now. We could go on for another two hours, but um, there's so many other lessons I have here listed. So, I mean, this really is somewhat something that others should pick up and get your book and read your story and read all those lessons because the book is chock full of lessons as you go through it. Um, and, you know, then uh, you also provide some links and now you have the freedomtrial.com where people can come and really get a sense of the tools that you used and you're a systems uh, person, right? That's what you say. Life, everything, you say that everything is run by systems and the quicker you figure out the systems, the sooner you can use them. And so you're, you're all about understanding those systems. And it seems like on your own, you were able, as you said, you know, you, you took the do it yourself approach and you fixed yourself. And now you're, you know, you've got a number of businesses. I think you, you say that you're the first, uh, you have the first veteran owned luxury fragrance company. Um, that's one of your businesses. Uh, is that right? Yes. And uh, it is also tied to the Freedom Triangle. It's called Triangle Fragrance. And it's much more than a luxurious eau de parfum. It offers self-help that ties to the Freedom Triangle because each bottle has a uh, eloquent statements card inside that, you know, speaks to time freedom, health freedom, mind freedom. Amazing. And, uh, you know, you also invest in real estate. You're, you're also, you know, you're doing the freedom triangle, you're consulting. I understand you're mentoring people. Mentorship is a big part of what you talk about in, in the book, finding mentors, learning from mentors. Uh, you know, I'm going to close out with this statement here from your book. I'll close the interview out with this, um, quote, You say that today I, Magda, live the American dream because I am the first line product of immigrants who individually wanted a better life and joined forces to start roots and a family in the best country on earth. uh, Sequentially, I am fulfilling my destiny by pursuing my best life using the discipline, resilience, endurance and adaptability, right? Those, that acronym from DREAM. I've developed over life's challenges and setbacks and the guidance I've gleaned from the M in DREAM, mentors. That's the freedom America affords its citizens. The very freedom paid for by the blood and lives of patriots 
their sacrifice and the sacrifice of their families. I am humble to enjoy such freedoms and do not take it lightly. And I am indebted to those who continue to protect those freedoms. Powerful stuff, Magda. Uh, thank you so much for being on this show. I can't believe how much I've left on the table. You've got so many more lessons to learn from. Um, where can our listeners learn more about you and uh, learn more about what it is that you have to teach? Uh, MagdaKhalifa.com. And I'm on the various social medias. Uh, if uh, anything, you know, they heard on this podcast resonates with them, I'm happy to connect and see how I can serve. Amazing. Amazing. Um, Magda, thank you so much for your service. Right. Thank you for your service uh, to this country. And, you know, I just want to thank you again for being on the Alpha Human podcast. It's uh, been uh, an interesting conversation and uh, I look forward to more of the content that you're going to be putting out there. Thank you, Lawrence. I am humbled and honored to be here. Awesome. Take care, Magda. Take care.